This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Con Giovanni, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. After weeks of chaotic results and high-scoring games, the Premier League returned back to earth this week. Finally, a normal week of Barclays. Just like we asked for, right? Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Egan Herrett, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello. Andrew, did you enjoy this return to normality, or should it be crazy every week? Uh, it was pretty boring now, to be fair. I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy it. It was a, a mediocre affair. Like, in fairness, if we want, if we want to say that it didn't completely return to normal, because all the big sides failed to kind of get results. Um, we're looking at Man City drawn. You're looking at, uh, well, Liverpool did win, I suppose, but that was a return to, after them dropping points last week. Uh, Manchester United and Chelsea obviously drew. Arsenal drew. Spurs are probably going to draw it they haven't yet a time of a time of recording you know the it, that i suppose is is a bit different like it wasn't a, pro, a procession like it normally is this time of the year yeah it was um i suppose the results they weren't quite as chaotic but they were still kind of had that weird energy of no one really knows who the good teams in the premier league are yet because even like everton who had been doing well lost 2-0 pretty comfortably to southampton and then aston villa uh, were beaten 3-0 by Leeds who were still kind of figuring out where they fit in the league as well so it was still a bit of a weird weekend but a bit more normal in general yeah like there, there's most definitely this season we and we'll probably talk about it more later on the season when it's become much more of a trend but there was in the first few weeks definitely there was a there was a weird thing happening where sides playing more traditional old school football of, of deep lying defense deep lying defenses and you know a, a solid midfield base were doing better than the what's happened the last years where you have a high line who are very able to be compact and take advantage of, of space uh just getting outdone by the by those compact defenses and by those deep defenses rather um and that kind of changed this weekend because you know um man city kind of were, were sucker punched a bit um and Arsenal definitely were sucker punched a bit by that by by having their team play so high up the high up the field for so much of the game they they kept giving away chances that way. But the likes of Aston Villa, who had had seen success this season, and and somewhat Everton as well, um, kind of got pegged back to more of their usual standard because teams just figured out okay if we don't uh, leave a huge amount of space behind us and don't uh press too much into their defense they won't really have any way to counterattack us and then we'll just pick them off as the game comes goes on like it's a rope a dope type of situation they tire them out as the game goes on and and i think it worked for leeds united it kind of worked for leicester and it it it, it definitely had a had a bearing on um on everton's defeat as well uh, but before we get into the minute detail of all the games, let's start oh, yeah. with uh, going across Europe and uh, looking at the first Clásico of the season, which went in uh, Real Madrid's favour. They won 3-1 at the new Camp, and what did you make of that? Well, Messi's still the best player in the world by so far. <laughs> he, anytime he got the ball, like people say he doesn't run, but like I thought he was actually doing a fair bit of a... Not he was doing a defensive shift, I wouldn't go that far, but he was in the game for a lot of it. He wasn't just standing around as an idle passenger. He was linking up well with Fatty, the young guy, as well as Frankie de Jong was given a bit more of an advanced role for the first time in a, in a Classico, which 
I'm not sure if it did suit him in the end, but he, he did get in a couple of chances as a result of it. Um, but And the reality is Barcelona haven't even come close to resolving the problems they had last season. They still have a gap through the middle of the field. Their fullbacks aren't up to it. And any time Real Madrid broke into the, the final third of, of Barcelona's pitch, they looked dangerous, even though Real Madrid themselves looked as blunt as ever. Yeah, because the, the build-up to this game was quite strange because, first of all, both teams lost their last La Liga game, which was the first time that had happened going into a Classico since 2003, I think, April 2003. And it's only happened eight times in the 128 years in the history of the fixture or whatever it is. Um, so, like, that's uh, that was quite strange in and of itself. And then, you know, midweek in the Champions League, Barcelona did win pretty comfortably in the end against a, you know, a pretty mundane uh, hung- Hungarian side, I think it was. Uh, but Real Madrid lost at home to Shakhtar Donetsk uh, and were 3-0 down at halftime. So that was pretty... Uh, a COVID woeful. hit, uh, yeah, a COVID yeah. hit. Yeah, so that's that's as bad a preparation as you can have going into a Glasgow. But uh, they ended up getting the result in the end, and it was a chaotic game as well. And like, mm. particularly the first half, I didn't see so much of the second, so I can't I can't say as well for that. But um, in the first half, like Real Madrid got a really early goal, and then very quickly Barcelona equalized, and it could have been more than one one at half time. Oh, yeah. Like they They're they ch- both were creating chances. Yeah, Messi actually, for all I, the praise I just gave him, he actually missed a couple of, you know, they for normal players, they would be difficult chances. But for Messi, you normally are used to him putting them away, like chances where he would dribble into the box and beat a few players and take a shot. He, Courtois, I suppose, is a big guy and, and that often does come back to help him, I suppose, when he's a goalie. He's got large limbs that kind of get in the way of shots. And uh, he, he definitely earned his uh, money in the in the first half. Um, It kind of it, it tempered out as the match went on because... I think Barcelona became very much, um, how would you say, they became very cognizant of that they were going to lose this match. (laughs) Because once they went behind, they just didn't look like they could muster anything else up. They kind of just, the morale went went out of them in a different way than it did in the first half. I I, I don't know, because it was very similar timing, I think, to the first half as well. Uh, But yeah. It's a sad, sorry day for Spanish football, I think, when when they're the two uh, linchpins of the league. Yeah, because, you know, this does seem like a great opportunity for someone else to win La Liga. It's just not very clear yet who that team will be because... um because Atletico aren't really, you know, they're suffering from kind of the same problems that the other two are having as well. And it, there doesn't really appear to be anyone else there in La Liga that would grab the brass ring, as it were. Um, Villarreal, so, you know, Villarreal. Unai Emery backed, uh, <laughs> I think they won 5-3 yeah. in, in the Paco Europa Alcacer uh, with a hat-trick at the weekend, last weekend, or the, yeah, this past weekend he scored a hat-trick, top scorer in La Liga, former Barcelona striker. But uh, the match itself, I thought, was quite interesting just because uh, the last time they'd met, it was a pretty drab nil-all draw, I think it was. There was a 1-0 one, one win, I think, for Real Madrid. I can't remember now, but it was pretty it was boring. Pretty poor, yeah. it, was, it was a boring, poor standard of game, and it was kind of... It, it wasn't a one-off either. Like The last few Classicals have been a bit bad to watch, really, which is a it, it just pales in comparison to the, the start of the last decade when those games were the biggest in in the sport they were absolutely massive Pep Guardiola going up against Jose Mourinho Ronaldo going up against Messi uh, but I, you know the it, it's kind of it, it, I split it into like four quadrants and ten years ago they were both really good incompetent teams and the problem was in the last few years that they were bad but they were still competent but now it's come around and they're both bad and incompetent so it's made the game way more open 
uh, it's just low scoring because they're like th- th- there's a lot of chances, but they're not taking those chances. Because I remember there were four threes, there were five nils, uh, ten years ago. Like there were a lot of goals in those games. There's not as many goals now because they're bad and they're not able to take those chances. But the chances are still there because yeah. the defenses are also bad. Yeah, uh, like and some it's it's you're talking about ten years ago. Like how many of the players are still the same from ten years ago? There's <laughs> actually quite a few. Like Ramos is still there, somehow not getting sent off when he makes ludicrous challenges. Like I don't know, Messi got challenges so got fouled so many silly times, just leaving the foot in on him a few times. Uh, it wasn't just Ramos, but he was he was culpable a few times. But PK still knocking around at that club. Uh, gets Busquets is still there. Obviously, Messi is still there. There's Casemiro, Kroos, um, Modric, who scored a scored one of the goals on at the weekend. You know, the, these guys are no spring chickens at this point, and they seem to be. It's almost like a seniors match, like a classics, uh, like <laughs> a five aside tournament at this point. Uh, but it's being played in front of nobody in a large stadium. Yeah, it was funny that you know this match happened uh, while you know in the background there were fresh talks of the European Super League as well, and yeah. if you know these are two of the teams that will be kind of you know the central figures of that, and it doesn't bode well for the uh, I suppose the how competitive not necessarily how competitive it will be, but how exciting it will be or what the standard would be like if these were the, the big teams in the European Super League. Yeah, I think your your thoughts have been spoiled in the last few years by the Champions League and the the you know the the crazy matches we've seen in in the last five or six years in the Champions League. But historically, big matches are not that entertaining. They end up being drab affairs where obviously very close, very tight. Teams tend to cancel each other out, and it's down to the managers to pull something off or a mistake to happen. Very much like international football, and th- and that's basically what it will become. It will become. A, a hyper-realized version of the World Cup, I think, if we ever did go to that European Super League. And how how do you feel about the European Super League at the moment? Do you think, like, you know, at this point, just get on with it and get it done? Or, or, or is this something that would be a, a nuclear option on football and would completely ruin the game? Yeah, you can you can look at it one, one or two ways. Like, at the moment, COVID has really put pay to any type of let's continue as it always has been in the past because it, it's obviously isn't viable for mo- majority of the teams in Europe that were running close to deficits in terms of their in terms of their business models and that's the majority of professional football clubs in Europe so something has to change when when in 1992 when the Premier League was created and it was seen as a, obviously at a smaller scale but a similar nuclear option that was taken by the club the Premier by the top division clubs in England at the time people thought it wouldn't work and people thought it was greed and people thought it, you know this this would be terrible for the game and probably the jury's still out on, on some of those and whether it has been terrible for the game globally because it created this kind of superpower of of premier league football that kind of usurped the popularity of a lot of other leagues globally and without really adding much quality and without giving much back to the grassroots of the game will that happen again if, if there's like an nfl or a major league baseball version of, of of football in Europe and we only really watch one main league and then all of these farm leagues or all of these minor leagues that will still go on in the background will they suddenly lose all popularity and you'll, they'll be in front of you know Bur- Burnley versus West Brom will be played in front of you know well at the moment it's played in front of about 10 people but you know w- when crowds can come back it'll be played in front of like a, a man and his jog will that happen and, and will all of those kind of regional clubs cease to exist as everyone kind of moves towards okay I'm I'm supporter of Inter Milan I'm a supporter of uh, Manchester United I'm no longer a supporter of Derry City you know that kind of way um, I'm not sure if that will happen or not but something really does have to change and 
if it is a European Super League, it's been touted for the best part. It's 20 years now since the first time I heard, I heard about it, that it after a G14 meeting, I think in, in like... 1999 after a Champions League I remember it was like when Leon were really pushing it at the time I think they're still involved in the G14 as one of the biggest 14 clubs in Europe I'm not sure if they still are but they were at the time and whether they'd still be for it now I wonder um, it's it's gathering some traction I can see why it would be popular amongst some of the clubs the Barcelona and Real Madrid obviously although they probably would lose market share in terms of the amount of money they receive from television revenue because at the moment they dominate television revenue for Spain that wouldn't be the same in the European Super League but in in Germany and, and in Italy especially where and and France to, with Paris Saint-Germain as well you have you have dominant super clubs that really have no competition at home and if they do it's a it's you know a, catas- a cataclysmic change in, in the game and it, it's usually an aberration that's corrected within a, a year or two so I can understand why they're looking to push towards something new, refreshing, and actually a bit more com- competitive than what they've been used to in, in recent years. Saying that, like, will Bayern Munich or Juventus win if if they ever got into a European Super League? I'm not sure if they would. Yeah, like, I think it was Rory Smith raised a point that I, I've long thought about this, is, like, what happens when Juventus and PSG are going to become the West Brom and Burnley of their league and... I, I, you know, for all the talk of this, and it, it, like you mentioned, twenty years, like this has really been going on since Silvio Berlusconi in the late eighties bringing it up, mm. and that eventually led to the formation of the Champions League, kind of as we know it today, not quite. It was slightly different then. Uh, it has evolved since, but uh, even then, like the talk of this has been going on for so long, but we still, despite that don't really know the logistics of how it would work what it would leave behind how you know what teams would be in it you know and the teams that would be in it has chopped and changed over the years as you mentioned and you allude to to the fact that Leon were heavily involved in talks 20 years ago but probably aren't involved in talks now at all like uh, I wonder how yeah. many other teams that you could that could be true of um so yeah I just think you know, it's the kind of thing that I don't think will happen overnight. I think this is something that will probably, you know, there'll be a lot more discussions of it. And I, I do, it's such a, it's such a bizarre concept really that it's impossible to really know what would happen. There's no way of being able to predict the outcome. You know, maybe the Premier League would thrive without the big six. Maybe it would completely fall over its hearse. Who really knows? Like, and, and the, they are the two kind of sticking points for a lot of people is, you know, which will happen. But really, uh, you know, despite the fact that these talks have been going on for roughly 30 years, it's, it's really impossible to know which way it would go just because the logistics of it are so poorly planned out. They just so... Yeah, it's just an idea. It, it really is just an idea at this point. It's just funny how worked up everyone gets about it every like three months that it comes up. Well, and it's it, it's become a real thing now. But but it hasn't really though. Like, you know, the clubs are still very quick to distance themselves from it. Mm. And ultimately, I, I just don't think it'll happen anytime soon. Uh, even though I think I, now is the time to do it. I don't know, like COVID has changed a lot of things in this world and, you know, I, I would agree with you last year if, if these talks come up again and they probably did last year and we probably brushed them off then. But now there, there is a real push behind it. Like, if, if I was being personal, I think between the European Super League and the, the reforms or some of the, the things put forward under Project Big Picture, I would... Isn't Project Big Picture? I've got that right. Yeah. yeah. I, I would prefer Project Big Picture, I think. And I, I would prefer if other leagues in Europe adopted something similar for where they need to support grassroots football and support competition in their own countries. 
like we can we can take a lot from US sports they, they're managed extremely well most of the time and they do a good job at selling their product most of the time and, and keeping people happy most of the time again that's there's always exceptions to that but some of the things that that we could learn in football from from American sport is to keep you know acknowledge that there is a reason why we have smaller teams there is a reason why we have competition there is a reason why we have um, history why we have um, support for these older more historic clubs that maybe aren't as good as everybody else and or maybe aren't as well supported as everyone else but they need to be around because they, they form a fabric of, of the whole game and it's something we lost under Silverio Berlusconi if you want to give him the credit for but the, the Champions League reforms that happened in the in the 1990s cutting out a lot of the European leagues that used to have at least some history in the Champions League like the, the Swedish the Danes the the Eastern European bloc, um, everyone, everyone used to have a bit of history in the Champions League, and that kind of all dissipated in, in the nineties, two thousands, and now basically doesn't exist. When we talk about some Hungarian team playing against um, Barcelona, or the fact that Shakhtar Donetsk, who are a crazy club, and we don't even need to go on to talk about them, but you know, it's a huge surprise when they pull off a, a victory. Previously, anyone could beat anybody in the Champions League, and that was something that upset Silvio Berlusconi because they'd work so hard to get into Europe and then they get knocked out. Um, but you, you know, the I think all of that needs to be taken into account. I think that's something American sport takes into account that the importance of all these regional leagues, of, the, of these teams. And I hope that whatever happens, if there is a European Super League, if there is required reforms needed to kind of get a lot of these businesses, which are football clubs, through the, the pandemic, however long it may last, that they, they, they take some of this stuff into account. And then just to go into the Premier League, it was Man City who uh, drew 1-1 with West Ham, a side that over the years they've kind of gotten used to beating 4-5-0. or five nil, uh, But uh, should we be concerned now about City that they're no longer doing that to West Ham? It, it It's... You see, I it's a bit of a weird one for Man City because you know they 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 looked tired, they looked not devoid of ideas because I think they they played quite well in some of their attacking moves during during the match. But really, I didn't understand a lot of Pep Guardiola's selections in the last couple of weeks. It obviously worked very well against Arsenal. They kind of played that weird two 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 two, however many that is up to ten five two formation that they that they played. Uh, against Arsenal which kind of bamboozled everyone they went back to kind of normality against West Ham and West Ham set up pretty well against them okay you're going to play a high line we're going to play balls in over the top we have a combative attacking player that's going to cause you a lot of trouble and if we get across and get a chance we're going to take it or we're going to do our best bits to take it and they did that and that's really what frustrated them Man City couldn't get a foothold in the game for large sways until the second half and they kind of just took over (laughs) but even then after they had equalised the game was still up like the game was still there to be played for and West Ham created chances with balls over the top and it is so simple but it's really been the undoing of a lot of teams this season just not being able to cope with teams pressing them and having quick strikers that can take advantage of a high line and if your defenders aren't totally switched on which Man City's weren't you can get taken advantage of and that's what happened now I'm sure tiredness fatigue has played into it and West Ham had more time to to kind of prepare for this match but yeah, it's it's as the weekend goes, it didn't turn out to be the worst result for Man City considering how different teams did. But again, they're still how much behind Liverpool at this point. I haven't even checked the league table today to, to find out. But it's <clears throat> a bit worrying for Man City that they're dropping points where they normally wouldn't. 
Yeah, like a couple of things kind of stuck out for me is, you know, you mentioned Man City or West Ham rather kind of just would hit a couple of long balls over the top and exploit the high line that was there. But I found actually a few times West Ham were like pretty confident to just pass the ball around like in Man City's half. Like they were doing that a lot more than, you know, most teams would do against Man City or more than we're used to seeing teams do against Man City. So that really kind of stuck out to me. Mm-hmm. And it was a really well-taken goal by Antonio. And yep. they were they, they could have had another couple of goals yep. as well in that first half. And then I think it was Fornals who, who got in on goal then in the second half that just tried to dink it over uh, Ederson but completely fluffed it and just went right into his hands. But the other thing that kind of stuck out for me as well for Man City is that, like, at a certain point, they did just kind of run out of ideas. Like for, yeah. and, and this isn't the first time. Like this is nope. becoming a pattern with Man City that ultimately, like, when they end up in a position like this where they're not comfortably ahead with 10, 15 minutes to go, they'll just start crossing the ball in endlessly over and over and over again. And it's like, why are they doing that? They're not a team built to uh, receive balls into the box like that and get the best of pretty strong, tall defenders that West Ham have. Even Thomas Suchek in midfield was dropping deep to to help, uh, you know, defend the box. And it's like, this isn't the first time they've done this. I remember there was a match against Southampton last year where this was really obvious. I think I was at home. Uh, I think they maybe won that in the end, but I can't. I just remember them hitting cross after cross after cross, and I just wonder like why do they do this? And and is there like an ins- a specific instruction by Pep Guardiola of oh you know when in doubt just kind of swing in across, or is it the players themselves just not believing in the system that Pep has brought brought in because by seventy minutes they're not already winning three or four nil, so they take it into their own hands to just bring in a bunch of crosses. It's not, uh, no, it's not, it's, you're right, like, it is, it is, I don't think it's the players doing it themselves, I think it's part of the system, I think that's how Pep does it, and it's, he's not the only person that's done it, historically, I can think back to, to many a time, when you have a systematic way of attacking, you don't vary from the system, if you vary from the system, the system isn't working, the, I'm, the, an example comes to mind of, of a manager who also plays this kind of systematic attacking football most of the time, and that's Brendan Rodgers, and if you remember um, Liverpool-Chelsea, the the slip game when Gerrard slipped over and Demba scored that goal, um, that was it, the, like Liverpool couldn't do anything, it was like watching that West Ham match, and I've seen countless other matches that are like that as well, when a, when a team wants to defend and another team wants to attack, and the team on the attack can't get through the defence, and they just don't know what to do, so they're just passing the ball around uselessly, they're sending in crosses, they're trying to create chances, eventually they resort, resort to taking long range shots. It's it's a kind of it's one of the big flaws of having a systematic attacking way of playing football. Generally, you're you have to be balanced when you do those attacking systems. So you have every player has a has a role in the in the game. If they vary from that role, they're taken off or they don't play. So no one does anything out of step with everybody else. There's no space in there for an unbelievable genius. The only exception in Pep Guardiola's time really was to, uh, Lionel Messi at. at Barcelona and even then he worked he made the system to work around Messi uh, in other cases there you don't have that luxury and I think that was the the problem with Man City they don't know another way to play they have Kevin De Bruyne who's a, a very good player but at the same time he's not someone who's just going to beat a few players and take a shot he's not that kind of player he's not Yaya Torre even uh, for that kind of aspect to his game you're looking at really to go back it's it's funny it's it's everything everything comes around in cycles history is doomed to repeat itself this is very reminiscent of the 1970s tactical play where everyone had a everyone played a system was very straightforward they pressed they interchanged positions they moved the ball up they passed and move pass and move pass and move score a goal 
and then that was battled with a kind of ultra defensive style of football that was very regressive of playing long balls in over the top and and really working hard to to get anything out of a game and then that was replaced with three at the back battled with three at the back and he had a a creative playmaker in midfield who would have to do something the Michel Platini's of this world who had to do something to unlock a defense I think we're probably coming back around to that at this point where we're looking for creative players to be at this point a plan b to the attacking framework that, that they've set up. I think Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United is an example of the, of where of a certain, that sort of player. I'm not sure if there's that many more in the Premier League of that high level. Philip Coutinho used to be a player like that. I suppose you could make an argument for Mesut Ozil being a player like that. But, you know, Man City don't have a player like that. David Silva is probably the closest thing they have and they haven't replaced him in the team. So there isn't a, a plan B. I know Phil Foden is supposed to be that, but I, he definitely isn't that kind of player either. He's He's been moulded into a systematic style as well. Well, uh, Mesut Ozil isn't currently playing for Arsenal in these days. He was sat at home watching live tweeting their uh, defeat to Leicester City. And is the honeymoon period over for Arteta at Arsenal now? They've lost the last two league games now. You you can say I think Arteta is suffering from a similar problem to, to Pep Guardiola, except with worse quality players. He has a system. He knows he wants to play that system. He's not going to deviate from that system, not at least at this point, because he needs to get everybody on board to it. So if the system doesn't work or if the team they're playing has a, a way to combat it, which Brendan Rodgers is a manager of similar similar style, knows exactly how to combat that system, it's going to lead to stalemate. And that's what happened a lot last season in the latter parts of the lockdown period where Arsenal just failed to score, failed to create chances. They only had one shot, I think, in the second half against Leicester City over the weekend, which is you know pretty poor. <laughs> Um, and I don't think they have a creative player who's able to unpick defences like that. At the same time, then, they have defensive woes, um, which I, I know you can say, oh, Arteta should be responsible for it, but there's there's problems that have existed there since Arsene Wenger was there that haven't been rectified. Uh, one of the main ones being uh, Shukram Mustafi, who I know didn't start the game, but amazingly came back from injury to just play a really bad match. I know it's his first match back, and that can be an excuse, but like really... I suppose like the the book stops with the manager. Why did you put a player back from def- back from a long term injury into that game against very quick strikers? And I think Brendan Rodgers in himself was very clever in holding Jamie Vardy off until later in the match. And as soon as they came on, Arsenal just kind of became unravelled and couldn't cope with his pace, couldn't cope with his movement, and that's what led to the winning goal. Yeah, it was a nice, uh, nice little goal actually. The ball from uh, Yuri Tielemans was fantastic. He's he's really become a creative force for uh, Leicester at a time when they've really been struck uh, struck down by injury. Uh, and like it was really obvious in this game that they were struggling with injuries. Like just look at the fact that Jamie Vardy was on the bench. Like they didn't really play with any recognized striker. They they were pretty poor in that first half as well. They were pretty content to just kind of. Limit limit Arsenal to bad shot t- shot attempts because like that has been the, my criticism of Arsenal lately is that they've just not been taking enough shots and no. you know you can't score if you don't take shots but they did actually take I think it was nine shots in the first half but none of them were any of real quality uh, and I think Leicester did a good job of, of managing that and then in the second half they did start to open up James Madison is back for injury as well he was playing pretty well I thought Harvey Barnes I think is one of the few players that has been fit throughout this and uh, you know he was doing alright but they they definitely have been struggling with injury like this wasn't a true performance of what Leicester City can be under Brennan Rodgers this was very much him reacting to the fact that they're missing in Diddy and so he played a bit more defensive yeah. because he is a huge loss for them and he will be out for the next for the next few months it looks like so it, w- 
it was good to see that Leicester can adapt because you know there were concerns there. They did have a couple of bad results there after that Man City win. Uh, they lost to was was West Ham was one of them, and they lost to someone else. So I can't remember now. Newcastle, I, I can't remember. <laughs> I um, don't remember anymore either. But I do. There was I do Wolves. But yeah, it was two. It was two bad results anyway. In between, uh, two good results against Man City and now Arsenal. Uh, so it's good to see that Rodgers is is adapting and you know he's not being stuck in in his old ways and which I think has been a criticism of Rodgers in the past. So he is growing as a manager himself, uh, even though he's been in the game quite long, uh, despite his young age. But a a good a good result for for Leicester, if not the best performance. Yeah, exactly. Like I think they were fortunate in the end to get the victory out of it because I think it was a bit of a a defensive blunder mess up from Arsenal and I think it's not for the first time this week they've had defensive issues and not for the last time this season now with injuries mounting in defence for them um, that they're going to have those issues and you'd worry for them as they come up against other teams the next couple of weeks um, whether they'll be actually able to cope with the the attacking framework some of these teams have because a lot of the teams they're going to be playing in the next few weeks are very uh, quick striking players similar to Jamie Vardy and that seems to be their undoing at the moment and then finally in the news I'd just like to commend Rex Rashford for his ongoing campaign to feed school children across the UK the work he's been doing there has been a fantastic ray of light in a pretty otherwise grim year and uh, credit to him for that yeah I suppose so I, I imagine he'll get sports personality of the year 22 which will be quite uh, an achievement for him and he's um made a lot of enemies in politics already so that's a it's an interesting uh approach to to one's career but he's doing it for the right reasons i suppose and um there's been no bad words said about him in, in the football realm i suppose yeah i thought it was pretty impressive that uh on tuesday night he, he obviously got the winner against psg pretty late in that game and then very early on on wednesday morning he was back on the the campaign getting pretty active on social media and drumming up kind of um, notice about what he was doing. And I thought that was very uh, commendable. Yeah, you know, he has a good PR people around with him. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Both managers are club legends in their own right, but on Saturday evening, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Frank Lampard presided over a drab and jury nil-nil result. The perception of the match going into it was that the loser's job security would be under intense scrutiny and that this ultimately stifled the match into a safe and predictable goalless draw. Just how accurate a read of this match is that and just how much pressure are, are there on these two managers? Well, we kind of called it a bit then when saying that like these teams don't really have much going for them in terms of attacking shape or attacking intent and... Um, we did say as well that Odegaard and Solskjaer will see in the, in the past week whether his players are with him or not and I, I think they most definitely are with him and they showed that with the winner in the winning performance in, in Paris uh, in midweek um, I think it was very much down to the weather had an influence definitely it was torrential rain and it, it varied during the match I think that definitely threw off a few of the players who, who you know might be reliant a bit more on finesse than other players and I think the referee didn't have a great game considering the the challenge on uh, from Harry Maguire that was missed out, uh, uh, which was I suppose you can say swings and roundabouts. They they lost that decision to Eric Lamella in the Tottenham game a few weeks ago, and they got this one this time. Um, yeah, it, it, it's I think it's definitely a case that these managers don't really know what to do with the resources they have. They can't send them out to do anything other than what they know them to do, and. 
each one of those managers is experienced enough now to kind of register okay I know exactly what my opposition manager is going to do I'm going to send my team out to stifle that and we go from there like Frank Lampard I think was most interesting I think last week he spoke about wanting you know we, we get nil all draws now and then we can fix the attacking side of the game which is worrying from a you know from a viewer a neutral's perspective for seeing matches but it's if he figures that out then Chelsea have a have a genuine chance of doing well this season yeah because uh, they actually drew nil nil as well midweek at home to Sevilla which I thought was also a pretty um pretty bad result for them really although they'll probably get away with it in the grand scheme of things but uh you know two nil nils in a row after never previously having uh drawn a match nil nil as Chelsea manager is quite funny um, but yeah, it does really uh, stand out that he he's he's saying things like that, and that he's clearly said, okay, let's give up the kind of fun and attacking nature of this team to make sure that we do know how to keep a clean sheet. And it just shows that he doesn't know how to get the balance right, which is a, a pretty big criticism uh, of him and, and a pretty big weakness uh, to have in in your bow uh, if you are a manager of any any club. Really, doesn't matter what level you're at. Uh, if you can't get the balance right between attack and defence, uh, you know, that's pretty bad. And it just really stood out as well, obviously, because we know, like, it's been highlighted pretty evidently just how much money they spent on pretty much every attacker in the world um, over the summer. They spent over £200 million on bringing in attacking players to just play like that, to, you know, to switch to a back three, um, to not really go United at all. I think they had one attempt on target in the entire match. Uh, and this is a team that had conceded nine goals in their last two home games, you know, they can see a six to a Jose Mourinho side, you know, that's how you know someone uh, isn't defensively solid, so, um, you know, that just shows kind of how meek and kind of pathetic I think they really set up in that game, uh, just given the context of how much money they spent, and, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty bad mark for, for Lampard in his managerial career so far. Yeah, like, I, I look at Timo Werner, I feel bad for him, like, Zayek, um, what's the name of the other fellow they signed from Leverkusen? Kai Havertz. Kai Havertz, you know, they're very young players still, I suppose, and they have a lot of career in front of them and they can move around. I think Timo Werner is, is a guy that doesn't seem like he's eager to move that much. I think he, he made a big decision moving. He wanted to move to the Premier League and challenge himself in another level or a different level rather than Bundesliga and not go to one of the other German clubs to do it. Um, and he's playing left wing back at times for, for Chelsea now this season. He's not being played through the middle. He's not being given the talismanic presence he had at, at Leipzig previously. He's your big signing. Treat him like that. He's the guy that's delivered at a, at a high level, at a high stage and in multiple tournaments in Europe and in, in the league. And you're just not treating him right. You're not giving him an, enough respect. You're not really knowing what you're doing with your players. You're, you're, you're reverting to type and playing players out of position in a defensive format you're not trusting with the youth that that were, that helped you so much last season it seems like such a hodgepodge of a decision making mess that's going on at Chelsea at the moment uh, I, but I, at the, uh, like saying all that we we've said it before they have the quality players you just listed they've spent 200 million pounds they have a, a top quality defense that you know with, with with pace with experience that if it clicks for them they could do very well but i'm not sure frank lampard knows how to make it click yeah, like that's the thing. Like you, you highlight the kind of the egos in the squad there, and how big you know some of those players are. Like I do wonder 
how much longer they'll kind of put up with this kind of mishmash, not really knowing what he's doing, style management that, that Lampard's going through at the moment. And, you know, like there is a history there, like a recent history there with Chelsea of, of players just kind of giving up on the manager and yeah. throwing it in, phoning it all in until they can bring in someone else because, you know, we all know how trigger happy Roman Abramovich is. And, you know, you highlighted, you know, are the players still playing for Solskjaer and you think that they are? And I wonder will those conversations start to be happening around Chelsea if these kind of performances continue? Like if, yeah. you know, they've played, what, five league games so far? And I, I don't think Kai Harris has played the same position in any two games in a row, which must be frustrating for him. And is not a way for him to grow as a player because he is still quite young. He still, you know, has to figure out what he's best at and how yeah. he can most maximise that. So, you know, Lampard is not doing that. He's not really helping him grow as a player and that must be frustrating for him. It's the same for Werner. Ziyech is, you know, on the bench most of the time. Yeah. Like, he did come on in this game. You know, I, it, I find it odd that there's not a lot been made out of the fact that he's been on the bench. Well, I know he was a bit injured before preseason, but, uh, you know, still, at what point Because he came from Ajax. But at what point... Should he be in the team? Like you know, it, 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 you know, there's a lot of question marks over Donny, over Donny Van der Beek at the moment, and you know, some people might say they're justified, but the fact that the same questions aren't being asked as Ziyech is just kind of inconsistent there, and I find interesting. Yeah. Um, and then Pulisic as well. You know, he had a good end of the season last year, but uh, since we're coming back from injury, he's not really lit it up as well. He, he seems to be stifled as well. And then there's, you know, as you mentioned, the youth players who <laughs> are just being kind of moved off to the side in favour of these players. Yeah, and like you said at the the onset of this, that you know Frank Lampard's a legend at that club, but he's not a legend to these players. <laughs> you know, most of these players were kids when Lampard was at his peak. And I mean kids, kids. When Lampard was at his peak, like they, they probably don't care. They probably don't have that much of an attachment to Chelsea. No offense to Chelsea, they're not that of much of a historic club. Like in the grand scheme of things, compared to, I know this is a, a horrible thing to say, but compared to the Real Madrids and Milan's of this world, you know, Chelsea are are a new money type of situation. So, are I'm just thinking how many of them one are regretting making the decision to go to Chelsea. I know the money was good and the challenge is fresh and you know you have realistic chances at winning tournaments because Chelsea invariably get to the business end of the tournaments but you know are they regretting their decision and then secondly are they looking around saying who's this guy and what's he doing and that just kind of raises question marks over the way that they've treated the youth players as well because they are the people who would have an attachment yeah, to Chelsea yeah, Football Club to absolutely. Frank Lampard as, as a legend of that club especially Mason Mount who is really you know it's been made a big deal that Frank Lampard kind of sees a bit of himself and Mount that Mount idolised Lampard as a player and uh, you know he's being shoveled off to the side like I wonder how he feels about that as well because uh, he, he was on the bench in this game which uh, I think was the first time he'd been dropped uh, this season so you know I wonder how he and Tammy Abraham and, and the rest of them all feel and Tamori yeah. even who's been completely isolated out of the side for seemingly no real reason because as we've said the standard center backs at Chelsea isn't actually all that no. great uh, so it's, it's odd to me that he's been singled out and shipped off uh, it didn't even get a loan deal in the end which must be disappointing for him he's in the shore ads though for them uh, oh, that's and, uh, good for Chelsea, which is odd because that would indicate that he would have been part of the plans to be in the scene, you know, with other senior players in the team, and then to be ostracized the way he was. Maybe something's going on in the background there. But there's other like Hudson Adoy. We don't even have to go into that large mess. But the, there's one thing that comes to mind. Maybe Frank Lampard is smarter than all of us, and maybe this is a big mind game. 
and he's playing us all off each other doing these random things that don't make any sense and promoting players and demoting them bringing players back into the squad and then leaving them out put bring better check out of retirement and then i don't know what on earth he's doing with the other goalkeepers at the side uh maybe it's all part of a grand plan to just bamboozle the opposition and make them not think not know what he's going to do next and maybe all the players are on board and we're completely wrong and you know, come the end of the season when Chelsea are lifting their their third trophy of the year and, and you know mm. having the the parade through London, we'll all look back and say, "Wow, we were wrong." Yeah, <laughs> maybe, he, he'll maybe. show us. Yeah, uh, but then of course, you know, Man United were the other side in this game. They obviously, you know, as we mentioned, had that good result midweek against Paris Saint Germain, and they kind of changed up their system in that game, went to a back three themselves, and gave the debut to Alex Talese. They've gone switched to the double pivot of Fred and Scott McTominay and. While that worked uh, to an extent on Tuesday, and I think they, that was actually a much improved performance relative to how they had played uh, up to then this season uh, in the Chelsea match, the that those two players in particular, Fred and Scott McDominay, I think were just terrible. Uh, yeah. You know, it was not a good performance from them either. No, and it's it's a problem that's haunted United now for some years that they don't have the midfield cohesion in the way they wanted. You would think at the you know having spent all the money on Bruno and on Paul Pogba and. Then, you know Nemanja Matic in the past as well, and Andrew Herrera and you know latterly Fred that you would you would have a combination of two to three players in that in that lineup that would really work uh but they still don't have that they don't have balance they don't have the correct combination of, of grit and style and and you know you see it when they play with each other they get in each other's way sometimes they, they overlap in positions they shouldn't overlap they're they're generally solid defensively, but they add nothing to the game going forward. They do not cover the 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 mileage on the field. They don't cover the the territory on the field to really make a difference. And it, it does worry you about like again the long term planning and the 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 kind of what solution could exist for for such a problem. I think it's easy to say, oh, you need to get no new players in there, and we talked about it before. But they probably do new. They probably do new do need additional uh, in, in investment in centre midfield to kind of at least have some sort of plan in there for to for combating better teams um, because I don't think Fred and McTominay really do know what to do against the better midfielders that just play around them. Yeah, because like obviously in the PSG game they were up against a pretty weak midfield there whereas on, on Sunday or Saturday sorry, they were up against you know Angolo Kante uh, who's you know, pretty well renowned for being one of the top midfielders especially ball winning midfielders in the world um, so it, it really struck out to me because like you mentioned that they are you know there to be solid defensively and I think they did a pretty good job of that in that game yeah. granted they didn't have a lot to do given what we said about Chelsea but then anytime they got the ball, it was just passing sideways, passing to Damon, yeah. or not Damon Lindelof, Victor Lindelof. Um, lost. <laughs> yeah, passing it to the greater lost. Uh, passing it to Juan Basaka and yeah. Luke Shaw and to but themselves. That's the, instruction. that's the instruction, is to get the ball away from yourself, get it away from the danger zone, get it over to the players that create things, which in the United's case is the hope is the wings for whatever reason he believes that Wan-Bissaka, Luke Shaw and the new fella till however you say his name from uh Portugal um they're the they're the creative outlets in the Manchester United side in a way like Liverpool have or other teams have 
shown in the past but it, it's not happening in United it didn't happen last year I think it was Wan-Bissaka take, take, took the most amount of crosses that were unsuccessful in Premier League history or something last season some, something ridiculous and that's not down to the player himself being poor it's down to the number of times he was given the ball to do that because there was no one in midfield to receive the ball and do something with it that supposedly is supposed to be Paul Pogba Bruno Fernandes has come in and kind of changed that a little bit but at the same time he runs into walls a lot of the time as well and, and the ball invariably ends up with the winger or the wing backs or the, the full backs and they just play the ball into nowhere in particular because there's no attacking shape to, to kind of latch onto yeah like you know there were a few times in the match as well where they, they tried to play a forward pass and I, I don't know if they made a successful one all match like they were like it just really uh highlighted to me like how bad they can be on the ball because like I think in the PSG game they were pretty solid they had a decent game but you know maybe as you say the weather affected them but you know yeah. they're professionals you know they should be able to deal with this kind of thing especially Scott McDominay who grew up in Scotland and, and obviously Manchester as well like he's yeah. he's used to playing football in the rain maybe Fred less Fred came from Fred. the Ukraine didn't he, <laughs> he just, yeah he, he's probably pretty used to terrible weather as well but I, I think in the, in the Paris game especially United similar to Paris in that match they bypassed midfield a lot they played it from front to back very you know that was the the style of the game and i think that made fred and mctominay probably look better than they actually are and that didn't happen as much because of the way chelsea set out against them in the match the weekend and the thing like with Solskjaer is like I think he did have a decent week for himself you know obviously beating PSG is a pretty good result but I think the manner in which they did it was also much better than kind of you know especially compared to the match that basically got him the permanent position in the first place the 3-1 win in, in 20, was it 2019 now Jeez, oh Lukaku time, time is such time makes no sense no. but um, you know at that point uh, you know that was a total smash and grab as you say Lukaku got on the end of two pretty lucky chances and then the absolutely incredible penalty decision that went their way that yeah. probably wouldn't have in any other season um, no. whereas in this match you know there's a bit of courage shown by Solskjaer to bring on Pogba for Talese and switch to a back four and go with the diamond midfield uh, and I think that definitely changed the game in their favour and they did uh, wrangle control back and were able to create a couple of nice chances from that uh, and I think you know it was a really good result for them obviously it helps them in good stead in their Champions League campaign now and obviously we'll go on to see how they do against Leipzig on Wednesday but then in the Chelsea match as well they, he made a similar change it just didn't quite work this time where he brought on Cavani and uh, Pogba and moved to kind of a diamond midfield again uh, and I wonder will this be the way he goes moving forward because obviously the Martial in that game either so Rashford played up front by himself and couldn't move out left like I wonder will they move to uh, a front two up top and uh, you know use any combination of Greenwood and Cavani and Martial and Rashford uh, behind a diamond and uh, will this be a, a complete change of formation or is this just a makeshift thing for these couple of big games that they have at the moment I, it's probably a combination of facts like maybe the way I see Cavani playing is a kind of he's he's the new Gallo or the upgrade on a Gallo if, if, if you will he's going to be the plan B when they switch the two up front I'm not sure if that's going to be the the standard game the standard game plan for any match in particular because I don't see United really being having much success playing that diamond up very often and having two up front very often like I could see Arashford work as a second striker it, it, there's just there's just too much there that's not functioning for it to 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 actually work as a as a realistic proposition, and I'm not sure about Cavani either. I it very much feels a bit of a Falcao move, and I could be very much proven wrong there. But your Uruguayan strikers tend not to 
who's the most successful Uruguayan striker is what, what's the name of that guy that was at uh, West Brom well they lose Suarez as well or well um, oh yeah yeah Luis Suarez was at Liverpool <laughs> fair, in fairness Luis Suarez I'm thinking of Diego Forlan previously but yeah Luis Suarez I suppose is, a, is a, an exception maybe to prove the rule I worry about Cavani actually making much of an impact in Premier League traditionally when he's played against Premier League sides in the Champions League he's not done very well he's a bit slow he is strong he is skillful and he has a hell of a shot on him but a lot of teams tend to combat that and you know the Grant Holtz of this world don't last very long in the Premier League anymore and I'm, I have a feeling that, you know, and this may come back to haunt me, but maybe Edison Cavani is the grand hold of Uruguay at this stage yeah. of his career. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that assessment of the way the main squad looks at the moment. But, uh, you know, I think Solskjaer kind of came out of this match with a bit more credit than Lampard. But ultimately, like, you know, I just, look at, I just look at both of these uh, managers and I wonder why are both clubs persisting when there's so many better options available like free Asians at the moment are available like let alone yeah. going and poaching someone from a different team like it, it just it seems mad to me and, and it led to just a, a dreadful match in the end like the fear that took hold over, hold over both teams um, like it doesn't bode well for uh, next weekend as well when, when Man United play Arsenal and uh, who are Chelsea playing Chelsea are going to Burnley um, so oh. it doesn't bode well Classic. for those two games <laughs> no it doesn't at all and like the reason they're still there is because apparently both are, are nice guys and they're well liked by the ownership and that really goes a long way in, in this tur- turbulent time that we live in at the moment they have flown their rivals away they have blown us all away in truth. Premier League champions 2016, the amazing Leicester City. The Champions League is back again already. It's uh, foregoing the usual two week break that we've gotten used to, and it's going to continue into the second of a three week back to back to back kind of fixture lists and uh, what do you think of this uh, you know temporary format change uh, we, we you know it, it has to it has to they have to do something to actually get the matches done in the in the time period that's been given so it's going to be a hell of a lot of football it's going to be a lot of um, probably tired bodies by the time this gets done and we're probably in for a few more surprises and then are there uh, any matches that uh, stand out for you this week what about you Declan what do you what do you think are stand up because honestly I the way the matches are set up now, even if we, traditionally speaking, we get a big time in at this stage, they tend up to be damp squibs. And if we don't, they tend to be, you know, uh, either procession or we get the odd um, surprise. So what one appeals to you this at this point? Because I don't see one that really shines out to me as going to be, okay, this is definitely going to be the match to watch because I tend to always make the bad decisions with the matches that are on <laughs> at the same time. Uh, well, when in doubt, just check out the the European Goal Show on BT. Yeah. To be fair, that is a good show. <laughs> um, but uh, I think the match that I think in pure entertainment factor, the the match that most stands out is Atalanta Ajax. Uh, you know, both both of those teams are probably vying for second place there in that group behind Liverpool. And Ajax lost to to Liverpool last week, and Atalanta won four 0 against Michelin. So uh, you know, good statement of intent there for Atalanta. They were the surprise uh, team in the Champions League last year, and the fact that they got to the quarter final were minutes away from getting oh, into the semi final. Sadness. Um, I know. 
Uh, so I think that could be a really entertaining game. Of course, Ajax won 13 nil over the weekend, which got a lot of coverage. Uh, so that could be, in, in just pure entertainment entertainment terms, uh, could be the, the match of the weekend. Yeah, like given given how they did against Liverpool, I, I kind of felt Ajax were disappointment and that that would carry through because they tend to... Ajax have a history of starting as they mean to go on in European competition, at least in my lifetime. And when they have a good season, they generally start like a house on fire and then they keep on going until they eventually either win the thing or they get knocked out at a certain point. And last season, you saw after their success of getting to the semi-final the previous year, you saw how poor they were and how they weren't really able to recapture that lightning in a bottle. And I felt it kind of felt like that again last week. But then, you know, the, their league their league form is outstanding. As you said, 13-0 shouldn't be is um, a scoreline that probably shouldn't be allowed in any... I think they <laughs> probably should call it a day. Like, you should take a 3-0 defeat, uh, <laughs> forfeit the match rather than use 13-0. Um but yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes. I would fancy Atlanta in this tie because I I still have question marks over Ajax and their ability to recreate and that lightning in the bottle um, form they've had in previous years. And they've sold so many players. I know they were they have a conveyor belt there, but I worry that they they need more time to kind of settle in. And Atlanta are, are a team that while they lose players, they seem to have a ready-made replacement already embedded in the squad before they let the other player go. So they had like similar to Bruce Dortmund. They kind of have this kind of system in place to, to to hold themselves together and keep the the style of football the team want to play together throughout the whole thing. And for that, I think they'll carry them past Ajax in this this midweek tie. And then as well, I think uh, just because of the result that we touched on earlier uh, between Real Madrid and Shakhtar Donetsk, I think it, it's worth keeping an eye on how Real Madrid do against Bruce and Munchen Gladbach in, in what is a pretty open Group B there. Like I think any combination of two teams could maybe get out of that group now, given the results that happened last week. Gladbach are also a team that seem to flatter to the sea when they get to European competition. They've they've been hyped up on multiple occasions in the past, given how they've done in Bundesliga, and they've just failed to really deliver in, in any European stage in many decades at this point. And yeah, that's I I I know what you're saying. It, it could be potentially exciting, and and I I'm liable to to for correction for this next week. But I I feel they'll just probably phone it in a bit, and Real Madrid will get the to get the result that they're kind of the club stature merits well they'll, they'll certainly need a result because if they do lose this they will be in a lot of trouble yeah. and will have a lot of work to hey, do hey Europa to League you know <laughs> they, they <laughs> imagine Real Madrid when was the last time Real Madrid were in oh. they must have been in the UEFA Cup last before the Europa League name oh change. yeah lo- loads of times but when there was only one to two qualifiers um, I'm thinking the early 2000s we need to check that well maybe no because they won the league and they won the Champions League late 90s I think they they interbeat them in a semi final, or I want to say Bayern Munich maybe did as well in '96 in the UEFA Cup. I I I'm pulling this out of memory now. So, but yeah, uh, it's been 20 years I'd say since the UEFA Cup uh, appearance for Real Madrid. And then just in the Premier League, the as we alluded to in the last part, the big game of the weekend is Man United against Arsenal. It's been 14 years I think since Arsenal last won a league game at Old Trafford. Is this the time to to end the streak? Well, they're going into this. I know they'll have a. I think they have a Europa League match in between, don't they? Yeah. Um, they'll go into this having lost, as you said earlier in the show, two consecutive league matches. They can't afford to lose another just for political reasons, let alone how it affects their league uh, ambitions for the rest of the season. Like being this far adrift of anybody, like three games down. I know that that'd be the fourth defeat of the season. Four defeats in what six, seven games. They started well this year, but that looks bad. Um, so I think I think it is the time for this to happen. I think Manchester United would probably be more wrecked than Arsenal. 
uh, given their Champions League exploits and the, the quality of teams they played in the recent weeks and I think Arsenal might just want it more and given they have a better attacking kind of setup and I think personally I think Arteta is a better manager than Solskjaer he may not have better players at his disposal but I think he's a better manager and I think it's it's an hour and ever job this is the third match of the season that Arsenal are playing one of the so-called big teams and it's really the the one they could target to actually get a, a result out of yeah I see this game being pretty similar to the Chelsea game I could see it being another nil-nil maybe a one-all uh, just because I think a draw might just suit both managers even though obviously they would prefer a win obviously but I just think avoiding defeat might be the the big thing here for both teams. Like last season, Solskjaer's team were completely wiped of the floor by Arsenal, if I remember correctly, in like in Arteta's second or third match at the club. I think yeah. it was Arteta's first victory and they were just dominant uh, throughout that. And given their attacking movement has got better than that since then and if Arsenal can really, you know, fill in the gaps that they that they've kind of they created for themselves against Leicester in terms of the defensive injuries and if they can get somebody else in there instead of Mustafi, um, I think I think it, Arsenal should be be better for this match. But, you know, Manchester United do have fantastic attacking players that could really pull a goal out of anywhere and it with my luck it'll be Edison Cavani with a hat trick. And then finally, the two, uh, the top two from last year's switch opponents, uh, Sheffield United play Man City this week and Liverpool play West Ham. Will we see a switch of results or uh, will this be a nice uh, eye-opening experience to see who the best team of those two really is? Uh, I don't think it'll be that eye-opening at this point. I expect both of the bigger sides to win. Like Sheffield United are... They did, they did, I think they did themselves. We didn't talk much about it, but I think they did quite well against Liverpool. Um, yeah, I and- agree. They they were solid for a lot of the match and you know it's it's more Liverpool are still coping with their new defensive shape but their attacking players have played well all season and Firmino got a goal which is something that doesn't come around very often um so if he starts scoring goals and you're a bit worried for teams that Liverpool play and that's why I, I'm kind of worried for West Ham because Liverpool have players that Manchester City don't have in terms of the attacking triumphant that they that they possess and with Diego Jota actually chipping in with goals now as well. Um, I don't really see how West Ham can really put up a, an answer to it, especially if they have injury concerns of their own with Mikel Antonio. If Andy Carroll, for instance, is playing up against this Liverpool side and Alisson is back, I I, I think it'll be a, a comfortable Liverpool win. The flip side of that, West um, with Sheffield United at Man City, you know, they're they're good sides, and Man City will be will be tired, I'd imagine, by the time the weekend comes around after another busy week in Europe, and they have a chance at it, but. I think given the the results in we- recent weeks from Man City, they have to actually get a result on the board. And I'd imagine Pep Guardiola is targeting this more than the European match this week. Uh, but that'll do us for uh, this week's Total Football Podcast. Uh, I think uh, pretty, uh, you know, decently interesting week ahead for football. I'm sure a bunch of news stories will just randomly drop out of that from nowhere. I think on Tuesday, the Premier League clubs are going to vote on whether to keep the pay-per-view uh, structure. So that'll be uh, something to talk yeah. about next week. God, imagine paying £14.99 for that Leicester match. Or that <laughs> Like, they were not great matches in any stretch of imagination. Ugh. Let's hope yeah. they vote that down. I think then we figure something else out. Um, if they went to fourteen ninety nine for a month, and they had a load of matches on it, then maybe that's a bit more realistic. But yeah, at the moment, I I cannot support the the pay per view and the, the the match selection they've made as well. It's been awful. Yeah, it really has. Let's hope. Uh, let's hope we get a good uh, outcome of that tomorrow. But uh, until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And I'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to tell your family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. This show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Substack at declanhart.substack.com, where I publish two weekly newsletters that will often go further in-depth on topics discussed during our shows. Those pieces can also be found on Medium at medium.com slash at cheesyheartbun, H-I-R-T-E. You can also follow Andrew on Twitter at Kanban27 and myself at cheesyheartbun. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.